Hey everyone, this is Sean, your favorite Leo co-host, and I just wanted to say that even though we're now in the thick of Virgo season, you can actually celebrate Leo season all year long by heading to patreon.com slash recordstoredropouts, subscribing to our content for like a dollar a month at the bare minimum. We'd really appreciate that, and hey, we've got your back, we've got goodies, we've got a special lovey-dovey, super lush playlist for you exclusively if you become a patron designed by yours truly. Record store dropouts demo take one. All right, so after we play that, we're going to transition to a G chord. We're going to play that for about eight more bars. Sound good? Uh, the, the first part does, but what's a bar, Alex? Oh, you know, like like a bar, like like a, a music bar, like a measure. What's a measure? Oh God. Uh, you know, why don't we just make a podcast? Oh, that that sounds great. Oh, okay, sounds good. Hello, dear listener, and welcome to Record Store Dropouts, a music-adjacent podcast for music-adjacent people. My name is Sean, my pronouns are they, them, and I used to work in a record store, but I don't think we're going to talk about that today. Hi, everybody. My name is Alex. My pronouns are also they and them, and I am a musician. I play a lot of guitar and drums. Today, we record this podcast on the ancestral lands of the Ho-Chunk Nation, and we're going to be talking a lot about Jeffrey Lewis and comics. Oh, my gosh. I'm so excited to talk about this. Alex, where do you want to start? Oh, my gosh. How about where... How did you get familiar with Jeffrey Lewis? So I heard exactly one Jeffrey Lewis song, in college, cult boyfriend, and then three years later went to a Jeffrey Lewis and Los Bolt show at Communication, which was earlier this year. It was on April 17th, and it was, in my mind, the most communication show that I've ever seen. I went to this show on a whim. I wasn't really planning on going to it. I thought, you know, I only know this one song. I really like it, but it's a Wednesday night. I work the next morning. I don't really know. Anyway, I took a leap of faith, as it were, and just caught this show and was not disappointed at all. In fact, I was actually blown away and immediately was like, we need to have a Jeffrey Lewis episode. In the second half of this, we will air an interview that I did with him maybe like a week after that show. So we've been sitting on this for a long, long time, and I'm really happy that we're finally talking about this. But as all communication shows are, it was an all-ages venue. This, I think, was particularly important because... Jeffrey Lewis's music and punk music in general, I think, is so important to be accessible for younger audiences. And so my favorite image from this show, and I'll dig into it, the whole thing in a second, but he ended the night with WWPRD, otherwise known as What Would Pussy Riot Do? And he just, you know, the bassist launches into this really sick baseline and he just does this kind of like spoken word thing and I didn't realize that that was the song because I had never heard it 
And I look over and just as I had seen them throughout the entire night, there were two younger people, maybe like, I want to say siblings, maybe like between 11 and 13 or 14, maybe like a little younger for the younger one. But here they are pretty much near the front. Everyone's being really respectful. Like there's not like a bunch of sweaty white cis dudes who are like body slamming one another (laughs) and slam dancing. Like it's just really cool that these kids are able to be there with their parents at a show that's talking about radical women. And I I want more of that. You know, I, I, I need more of that in my life. So it was also really cool. He did this kind of home movie that we'll talk about in a little bit, which we actually saw a video of together and I think we'll share with our listeners. For those who don't know, he does these kind of like sketchbook sort of things, like big blown up comics that are just one page each and he flips through them and he did two of them that night. One of them was like a story about an alien that's lost one of its hands and so makes a person its hand. What? Yeah, no, it was like really cute and whimsical and then like I think that's how he primed us because it was like, oh, this is kind of like a a funny medium, blah, 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 blah. And then towards the end of the night, he was like, you know, I feel bad for the people in the back who might not be able to see this. If everyone could sit down, if that's okay with everyone, then everyone can see this. And so we sat down cross-legged. And again, it, it felt kind of like a classroom experience. And then he launches into this little bit about the history of communism part, I want to say five or something. And it was about communism in Vietnam and the Vietnamese war. And oh my God, like this is just such a fascinating artist and musician. And I I say artist first. I think we should dig into that a little bit because he does so much more than music. And I don't think that he initially approaches everything he does from a musical standpoint. Do you think that's fair? I I definitely do. It's on one hand, it's just it blows my mind that Jeffrey Lewis has the creative capacity to be both just this prolific comic book illustrator and artist and a very prolific musician. Yeah, I would definitely say that a lot of the songs that I've listened to kind of come at it with this comic book sensibility. I feel like mm. humor is often maybe not outright infused. Sometimes it definitely is. But I feel like his lyrical sensibilities are so good so skilled (laughs) like and I don't know if that's like part like writing and being able to arrange things going from like a two-dimensional thing to like something that's like arrangement and sound I don't know I don't know if maybe it's just like an organizational in the brain I've got this skill set thing but like even when like for example when he's ending like a long line in a song and as like punk songs often are especially like his it's jam-packed with a lot of words and so like even when he ends <laughs> a line with a multi-syllabic word sometimes it's like oh my gosh is it gonna fit in the melody oh, is it gonna yeah, do that right and always pulls it off you know hmm, and mm-hmm. it's not in a way that's cliche or forced either and I feel like that like creativity is I don't know there's something about it that just screams like multi-modal artist to me okay that's a really interesting connection to make and not one that I've necessarily thought about but if you could expand on that in relation to like how you feel about the musical arrangements themselves maybe touch a little bit about what kind of genre you would place Jeffrey Lewis in I mean the big thing if you if you know Jeffrey Lewis I think is pretty much synonymous with anti-folk but I feel like 
no one really knows how to define that. So I'm wondering if you could take a stab at that, Alex. So I think the anti-folk thing comes from a lot of different places. I think the purpose of anti-folk for a lot of musicians might be to like instill this like shock value maybe or just at the very least like push against societal expectations of what folk is supposed to be and also the sentimentality of traditional folk and and like pushing more into like a more political sphere but more so i think just musically like being like you think you know folk you think you know what's going on here and then (laughs) pulling out like these extremely long lyrics like lyrical heavy lines and making it it's very like like storytelling in a lot of ways too which is very very traditional folk but then there's always like i don't know like i'm thinking of the song like the last time i did acid i went insane for example yep yeah was that what you were thinking of that's that's the one yeah yeah for sure and the topic is not like traditional folk at all right and then Mm -hmm. like dropping acid right but also just like this whole like cautionary tale of like hey next time you do acid maybe do these things it's like (laughs) i feel like this song also goes a lot of ways because that's just one part of the song but also there's a storytelling element too to it in the very beginning where it's like these are all the things i did while i dropped acid i shouldn't have dropped acid i shouldn't have eaten the acid like whatever and yeah i totally feel i feel like anti-folk is a really hard thing to grasp and i feel like it's one of those things for me when i hear it it's like huh is that what you're going for maybe like i don't know but i think just like folk and indie more like i don't know an indie or punk or an indie or folk not straight out indie although i think some of the songs i will be fully honest there's just so many songs in his discography that even since you introduced jeffrey lewis to me i haven't been able to make it through all of them <laughs> probably there's not even so scratched much. the surface no i haven't either like i've listened to maybe two or three albums all the way through and yeah. some singles and it's really difficult to just like grapple with everything that he's putting out there the song that you mentioned the last time i did acid i went insane is like the big one that I think about when trying to grapple with this idea of anti-folk. So if I want to describe, you know, we're we're looking at his Wikipedia page now and the other genres that are up there are indie rock. Okay, that's kind of a, a given, I suppose. Yeah, yeah, I can see. The one after anti-folk, though, is folk punk. And hmm. I think that's a fair thing to say. But when I think about like major folk punk acts like AJJ is the first one that I think of. Mm -hmm. And they've gotten decidedly less folk (laughs) and more punk over the years. You go back to like their early stuff from like 2005, 2007. There's, you know, an upright bass. There are cellos. There's like... I think banjos at some point. And if they don't play banjo, like other folk punk artists do. And I think I would describe that genre as if Woody Guthrie found an electric guitar. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Jeffrey Lewis is if Woody Guthrie did a fuck ton of drugs. Okay. But like not actually because Jeff Lewis has another song off of the album it's the ones who've cracked that the light shines through which came out in 2003 called no lsd tonight have you heard that one alex i haven't i haven't heard that oh my god it's amazing if you're listening right now please stop the podcast and go listen to both of these songs back to back this one is i feel like kind of a spiritual successor to the last time i did acid i went insane because it's just all about like okay people have heard this song and think oh hey you're jeff you're the guy who like 
doesn't like acid, but I'm sure you just had that one bad experience. If you do it the right way, i.e. with me, sure. you'll enjoy acid. And Jeff's just like, no, I did it once. It fucking sucked. Like, don't push it, please. Right. We don't, we don't, I don't want this. Right. And, and so like, there is that kind of like just weirdness, but not necessarily like, I don't think there should be this like imagery of Jeffrey Lewis as like some drugged out psychedelic, like freak folk kind of like person. Right. Mm -hmm. Like, which I think is really cool. And, and you dig more into his songs and bringing it back to this all ages show at communication, like, very, very, very few, if any, swears in his music. I don't mm. know if you've noticed that yeah, from what I have. you've done. Yeah, it, it's really interesting because I feel like Jeffrey Lewis comes across as very, I don't know, friendly, approachable, tame is a word that comes to mind. Mm. And I'm thinking of that like just contrasting between like other artists who might have a, a punk-ish folky sound like Jeffrey Lewis, but might be, you know, the topic or in, and the lyrics might be very very different and would definitely include swears yeah i yeah. definitely noticed that right like any other band i mean looking at the debut album which came out in 2001 you know the chelsea hotel oral sex song is definitely not for kids but it's not like explicit or overtly like disturbing in any way like it's a really cute and lovely song and there's some reference to like oral sex but like yeah it's done in a really sweet way and it's not like creepy like it it's just like you know if if you had a song like that that came out let's say 15 years earlier mm. right mm -hmm. in like the 80s yeah in, in the midst of like hair metal like it'd be super fucking gross yeah. i'm sure like Totally. No way. No way. But like, yeah, there's just like this almost wholesomeness to it, which I don't know if if that really fits into like this anti-folk thing at all. I think you've got the storytelling thing just nailed dead on. And I think that comes a lot from his comic making, right? He, yeah. I think he thinks of himself as a comic artist who makes music, not as a musician who also like does comic books on the side. So... If there's anything else you want to talk about with the music, I think we should do that. Otherwise, I would love to dive into comic books for a second, either related to Jeffrey Lewis or just in general, and then we can do a video and explore a website, I Let's think. Let's do it. Yeah. Okay, so w what's like your experience with comic books? I mean, I feel like I've always been surrounded by comics in some way, and I will also say that I've never really been into comic books in a traditional okay. sense. Like, didn't really have many growing up or mm -hmm. seek them out, but I love graphic novels. I really, really enjoy illustration and art just in general, and I feel like it's a really awesome, like, modality to, like, read yeah. A story, you know, like you get just a lot from it that you might not get from a straight like novel or anything like that. And uh, yeah, I mean, I'm an artist, too. So I've always tried my hand at different points in my life to create mm -hmm. comics. Um, oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah. I had some like original characters that I, I guess, experimented with, like drawing out all throughout like high school and like different characters would emerge. And I'm like, what, what would it be like if I tried my hand at writing or something like yeah, that? Yeah, yeah. But really centering on the art itself and not like a narrative story or anything like that. Interesting. 
Yeah, so that's kind of my experience with comics. Didn't get very far in like ever drawing one out or anything like that. And I feel like there's an expectation of, I think, what comics should look like or what a comic book style is. Yeah. Graphically. Yeah. Yeah, right? (laughs) And I, on one hand, really, really love that. And on the other, I'm always like so blown away when people can like fuck with that and do something else. There's just so much that one can do like on a piece of paper, right? So like... The sky's kind of the limit, and I really enjoy seeing that. Oh, yeah, for sure. And I think we'll see that a little bit with the music video that we're going to watch in a second. Definitely. How about you? So I have definitely doodled (laughs) all throughout, like, middle school and high school. I made a series of characters that this is going to be a great segue into the next topic. Oh, yeah. Because so, so they were just vegetables. Okay. But... They like were superheroes. Oh. So it was the adventures of Super P and his super friends. Cute. I want to say. And, you know, peas are really easy to draw. They're just a yeah. circle. And you put a face on them, maybe a cape, maybe some circular hand. Like, it's super easy, right? But, like, I think it's really telling that, like, my experience with comics and doodling, like, pretty much immediately culminated in a superhero doodle. Yeah. You know what I mean? I do. Yeah, I feel you. The two are just inextricable from one another in a way that's kind of frustrating. There's some, I think, great things about superhero stories and the genre, but, you know, as far as blockbuster filmmaking goes... You know, Marvel has its hooks Mm -hmm. in me, for sure. I go to them now. Yeah, just because it's like a cultural event, I suppose. Yeah, I suppose it is. It's it's weird because for the longest time, I thought of superhero movies as just like lazy storytelling. Hmm. That's like Mm -hmm. just you want to... I think there's this trend in filmmaking that I don't want to dig in too much now because I want to save it for a future episode where we'll be watching a movie and talking about it and this will come up a lot but like I think there's this movement towards seeing what special effects can do Mm -hmm. and I don't think this is necessarily like a new movement like I think you know as long as movies have been around and as long as special effects have existed there's always this movement towards like okay like what can we make seem realistic and like just kind of like mirror reality and I don't know if that's necessarily like the right move to make with a fundamentally fictional narrative and mm-hmm. I th- and I think where it ends is that I, I think it ends in the matrix <laughs> Oh yeah, <laughs> um, but, but I'll, I'll talk about that in a future episode and so I think with like Jeffrey Lewis's music as this kind of like anti-folk like not major corporate backed media and then like he's doing these like really lo-fi things like I I haven't seen a Jeffrey Lewis video that music video like an official one that has been super well produced and I'm using air quotes because by that I kind of subtly mean like has a lot of money behind it like you you see a lot of them and, and I talk about him with this and the interview is just like you know like there's just someone who threw together an idea or there's like this $99 music video endeavor that like, you know, it, it's it's not focused on like how much money can we pump into something to make it look good. It's just like, 
what can we do on a shoestring budget? And I think that's like really interesting because it forces you to problem solve right. in, in a way that just like throwing a fuck ton of money at something yeah. doesn't. Totally, right? totally. No, I mean, and I mean, it just for me comes back to like the essence of like DIY culture and punk. Yeah. Like, I mean, that that's the most punk thing I can think of, like just doing it yourself, you know? Right. With, without the expectation that like resources, but I'm thinking like other people's resources would have to like support it. For sure. Yeah. For sure. Well, how about we dive into one of these videos? I'm then. so ready. Let's do cool. it. Cool. Yeah. So we want to recommend I Caught the Disease for LPs, which is a 360 degree video from Planet Groucho Records on YouTube. There's just a little under 1200 views of this it was shot in scotland on september 9th of 2017 and we'll actually play a little bit of it right now alex what can you say about this i love this i've literally never seen and i just may have been looking in the wrong places there might <laughs> there might be these out here but i've never seen a 360 degree music video before and the thing i love about it is that it's just a live show yeah, it's and it's just him. Yeah, there, there's no band here. Like Los Bolts aren't there. I think he was playing with them by that time. But you know, we're just scrolling around. This person is tapping along. Mm -hmm. It's super great. What I love about this is like you could spend this entire video not watching Jeffrey Lewis play. You could just people watch. Yeah, you could look at the ceiling. Yeah, you you could totally like you you can have that experience. And I I think like. Again, maybe I'm not looking in the right place either, but this is the first time I saw something like this. And it, it feels so Jeffrey Lewis, even though I feel like he had nothing to do with like how this video was shot. I, I don't know if that makes sense at all. I don't know if you even know if it makes sense to myself, but like, <laughs> you, you know what I mean? Yeah, though? Like, I do, yeah. It's, it's, it's weird. It's weird. So there's that. Y'all should definitely check that out. Here's another one which I think we should just play for our audience. So can you describe the title of this video while yeah. I adjust some levels? Absolutely. So this is the Jeffrey Lewis Low Budget Video History of Communist China. <laughs> it was published by user Claire DeLune49 on March 2nd, 2008. And the description says that it is an impromptu performance of an illustrated history of communism, part four, China, in a New York City apartment accompanied by himself, i.e. Jeffrey Lewis, on a tape recorder. All right. So if y'all want to pull this up at some point, feel welcome to do that. Otherwise, I think we'll just play it underneath and talk about it a little bit. How does that sound, Alex? That sounds really great. Thanks, Sean. All right. This is October 25th. Uh, 2006, we're on East 78th Street. I've got my friend who's going to perform the music here. <laughs> and we're nice. I.E. Uh, e. himself, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Are you awake here? Also Hello. very lo-fi so tape recorder. Which, which one are you going to try to do now? And you weren't paying attention. I'm going to do the history of, oh. communism, sure, history of communism in China. Oh. And this is uh, Jeffrey well, Lewis of Jeffrey Sean Lewis and the Creeping Brains. Yeah, Jeffrey Lewis solo. Wow. Yeah. Uh, this is okay. So there's this like really okay, raggy, like sketchbook uh, that just says China at the top and looks like a comic. 
It does. Right? Just yeah. like a single panel. Big block letters, single panel. Yep. China is the world's third biggest country in size, but in people, the absolute biggest with over one-fifth of Earth's population. For thousands of years, and he's going to flip the book. And, China developed and its own ways that's and about it. And yeah. this is exactly what he did at communication except i think it was i feel like there was a slide projector that time so just imagine like these pages projected on the back of communication while i don't think los bolts were playing i think it was again another like pre-recorded sort of thing and it was done in a similar style the music was a little different i think you and i listened to uh, the part on Vietnam, and it, it feels a little more upbeat, kind of like sing-songy almost. Yeah. Is that, does that make sense? Yeah, it does. So you've seen a few of these now, I think. I believe we watched the Vietnam one. Yep. We watched North Korea yep. last time we met up. We're watching the China one right now. What? How are you feeling about these? Like, what... Like, what do you think about just, like, this idea for, like, a musician totally. to be, like, I'm going to do, like, a deep dive <laughs> into into communism? Like, like I, I guess to start out for, for viewers who have not watched as many of these so far or might be new to this entirely, like, w- what do you think the perspective is on communism just as, like, an overarching, like, history? Like, like what's... I don't know, where's Jeffrey Lewis coming from? Yeah, so I think, one, it's really, really awesome to see just, like, all the artwork and all of, like, the work in creating the songs that goes into it because these songs are very, very long, jam-packed with a ton of history. And having seen two of them before, watching a third one right now, I, I'm really struck by just how consistent his artistic style is, but how, like, the color scheme and, like, the block letters is different in mm. China. Like, it's got this orangish, reddish kind of thing that other ones might not have had. Um, so, so that was really, really cool to just notice there being some, like, I don't know, there's, like, a theme or something for this one in the way that the graphics come across. And in terms of how I think Jeffrey Lewis is, like, viewing communism as well, I, I would say that it's honestly a really refreshing take on communism because it's like neutral to possibly positive you know and i feel like whenever i like first of all conveying history via a song is such an accessible and awesome way to convey history and to teach history and i think he does a really awesome job from you know what i do remember of history having gone to school (laughs) a little bit ago um and, and two, I feel like having received, you know, American history in an American yeah. education system, there's this really subtle and not subtle at all uh, view that communism is just this evil, terrible, oh. horrific thing. And we like, yeah. I think when when I say communism and China, I think a lot of people could think like autocratic dictatorship or something mm-hmm. like that. And or like military dictatorship or anything like that when you co- when you think of any of the countries that have been showcased in these videos and like Jeffrey Lewis definitely like talks about any iteration of those kinds of things but it's it's not like this is what communism is this like communism will right. inevitably lead to you know inequities in power right. structure will lead to some sort of autocracy will lead to some sort of like 
I don't know, lack of resources or scarcity, right? Right, right. And I feel like this is just such a refreshing take. Yeah, it's, you know, how I feel about it, it's not that whole sort of, like, communism or nothing, like, looking at, you know, (laughs) the more arguably, (laughs) and I use that word very lightly because... I really want to say definitively, like, (laughs) fucked up aspects of, like, some communist regimes. But, like, you know, it's it's not... This is really cute. He's, like, talking with himself here. (laughs) Oh, Oh my God. I I love that. But, okay, so so to digress, like, it's not communist bashing. It's not, like, this doesn't work. It's, like, here's like some ideas that people had and here's like what was wrong with it. I I feel Mm -hmm. like it's not so much, you know, it doesn't really go into, you know, what atrocities have been committed under communism a ton, but it talks about like in, you know, in the North Korea one, like, Hey, like for a while, like North Korea actually had like a better economy than like South Korea. And then, you know, the situation changed, but like they, he talks about U.S. meddling and imperialism and all these things, and it's it's not just such like, it's it's not like this isolated like, oh, here's this one thing that happened in this one part of the world and rose and fell all by itself yeah. with no interference, and that's just proof that like this thing does not work. Blah 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 blah. It's like. Okay, so here's what was going on. And, oh, by the way, like, we were fucking influencing how we wanted to shape history, right? right? And then we write the history books so that you don't learn about this, so that you think that it's this certain way. And, and yeah, so so I wouldn't necessarily say, like, well, yeah, no, I I, I guess I would say kind of neutral, where it's just like, this is, here's some info that you might not have. Maybe, Maybe you should look at this info. A little mm-hmm. bit, and mm-hmm. then decide for yourself. It's not like he's doing this like decked out in like you know like like military regalia or right. like you know trying to sign anyone up for like the Communist Party of the United States of America. But like you know, is I, I think providing just a good perspective on things that we are not taught here in the United States. Definitely. And I was actually thinking as you were talking, like part of what's refreshing to me is that it's history not told from the perspective of the United States Mm. in a lot of Mm. cases. I mean, it's like literally the the history of communism in China. It's not like how we perceived it. And I mean, I'm sure a lot of it might, I mean, I think any historical anything might have some bias because oh, yeah. it's just heavily laden in our society to have bias around the education of For history. Sure. Um, and at the same time, it it is just really, really cool to see like, okay, this is just, it feels so neutral. Like just, okay, here's this thing, here's this history. And it's something I, you know, I've never gotten before, especially right. not put to music and with amazing comics. Yeah, no, absolutely. The one comparison that I do have, which if you haven't seen, if our listeners haven't seen, for the love of goodness, go check out Bill Wirtz right now, the History of Japan video, oh, and yeah. then the History of the Entire World, I guess, which came out now two years ago. History of Japan came out three years ago. Wirtz started out as just like doing these jingles. Oh, he's got like a relatively 
new one or oh, the, his wow. videos are getting longer. I need to keep up with him. My God. <laughs> but he like just did these like really kind of Dadaist jingles where it's just like some seemingly random thing set to a very kind of Microsoft Paint graphic. Mm-hmm. And then he built that into first a nine minute video about the history of Japan and then a 20 minute video about again history of the entire world i guess <laughs> and and that one's really interesting cuz it kind of ends with like you know that one i feel like definitely has a political bent where it's like hey everything is like going to shit right now and the nazis are back and the ocean's full of plastic but like okay here we are whatever like it, it's very much a part of this generation i think and i think it's amazing that like I mean, obviously very condensed, not necessarily like exhaustive, right, in the fullest meaning of the term, but like it's thorough for what it is, right? And Mm -hmm. and I feel like it's a good just like, you know, if you want to get an idea about something that might seem overwhelming, you can get the highlights and then be like, oh, I'm actually like really curious to learn more about like what arts were being made in Japan in like the 1400s. And this is kind of like, I would have never have known that because it's, I hadn't encountered it in a way that like is accessible for me. You know, like it was just like a big old book, maybe just like some words. And like for those of y'all and like, if that's like how you get your information the best, great. It's not <laughs> for me. I'm I'm too distractible. And and I think like with Bill Wirtz, with Jeffrey Lewis, oh my God, we have to do a Bill Wirtz episode at some point. <laughs> he deserves dope. it. But with Jeffrey Lewis, I think, and, and these kind of like comics in this history of communism, just like I think it shows that potential for like pedagogy using music, using visuals, using like such different forms to like distill information which i think has to become diffused definitely for just like for art's sake for for us to learn and i i I really hope that's like the way that that we go definitely and oof sean you said the magic word i'm an educator so i'm all about the pedagogy (laughs) um and i completely agree having some sort of multimodal thing to distribute information is so great. But also, like, I think the history of Japan, the history of the entire world, I guess, like, and Jeffrey Lewis, these are all available on YouTube. Like, it's super accessible. You just have to know how to get it. You have to know (laughs) that it exists. Right, true. But but I completely agree. It's, It's really amazing that this is out there, that it's available for folks to consume and think about and, you know, ponder history in general. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Highly recommend all of these videos, truly. For sure. Very, very good. Sure. And I, I should note, when I, when I say free, that does come with the caveat of, like, you need to have an internet connection and, you know, your own access to that, which not everyone has. So it, it's not as widely accessible and, quote, unquote, free as we would hope for. But I think it's a good step in that direction. I just think that aspect of it is important to acknowledge sticking with media though sticking with the internet stick ending this part of the episode before we dive into the interview on oh my gosh maybe maybe some of the most fun that i think we're gonna have on this podcast alex let's go surf the web i'm ready yeah let's do it okay so so we've got a a little website up in front of us called the jeffrey lewis site 
com and Alex, since you're so, so great at this, could could you please describe what you're seeing? I would love to. Okay, so this is an illustration. It's a website. It is a single illustration of what appears to be like, I don't know, some newspaper, some newsprint. And it's all hand-drawn. And there are, it's, it's kind of like looking at a newspaper comic almost, right? And yeah. so there's like a lot of panels that feature a lot of different things. And in these panels, you can like click things, right? There are links embedded in this image. And like the links will get bigger as you hover over them. It's really interactive. So there are lots of different things you can click. You can get Jeffrey Lewis news on the news panel. You can look at Jeffrey Lewis discography, photos, music videos. You can buy things. You can get more links. You can apparently click to play Space Invaders. (laughs) However, I will say when I clicked on this, it downloaded some sort of like it looked like an install file for a program and yeah. I wasn't able to actually get it oh, to work. Shoot. shoot. So <laughs> if you're out there, dear listener, please take a visit and see if you can download and play Space Invaders. Let us know. We'd really love to hear about that. Another thing that I'll say that I just love about this site is I don't know how old this is. I feel like a lot of this, <laughs> the way that this website's set up is very old technology, right? Like stuff that yeah. I, I saw not necessarily right when the internet became a thing, but like probably early 2000s. And sure. yeah, and there's like a link to go to a message board and right next to it is a link to Jeffrey Lewis MySpace. When you click that though, it goes no. to their Facebook. Oh, that makes me so sad. I like, I, I wish he still had a MySpace. Uh, do you feel like he like deleted it? Do you think it's out know. there anywhere? It might be. I feel like oh anytime I've ever tried to access... MySpace, like my old MySpace account, it's, I don't know, I feel like the email is ancient, the password can't be, re- I don't know, I don't know if it's like not a thing that even exists anywhere, and apparently, okay, so Jeffrey Lewis does apparently have a MySpace page. A G- yeah, it says Jeff Lewis Band, New York, New York, are these, oh, I don't know who, what, what is this? I haven't been on MySpace in yeah, years. This is, this is completely different. Yeah, no, that's fucking wild. I didn't I'm, like I'm going to, I'm going to run. <laughs> I'm going <laughs> to run away. Abort the mission. Okay. But Sean, I'd actually love to hear your take on the message board. Oh my God. We're diving the fuck in. Forget MySpace. Jeff Lewis message board is where it is at. Listener, you, you have to go there right now. If you want to go directly to it, you can go to jeffreylewisboard.free.fr. And Alex, we actually just saw Gully Boys play last night. We did. And they have a certain song called Neopet Graveyard. Um, I want to say that this forum pretty much exactly is the same thing that is on neopets.com to this day yes to this day it has not changed no ever so you've got like forums that say music live jack lewis lyrics tab oh my god there are tabs for his music that's so helpful yeah look at this oh my god so I mean, some of these, like, very wildly as far as, like, the last post goes. Like, so for alphabetical tabs, chords, index, I guess Will Oldham is on here. That's fucking uh, wild. Okay. Oh, my God. A, a couple times. Yeah. So I guess he's, like, a moderator or something. I don't know. But the the last post from this is, like, 2012. There's some from 2017. Um, let's see here. You can log in to check your private messages it oh, sounds like. 
I can't see if anyone is online right now. Do you know where? Yeah, who? Let's see, who is online? If we click that. Yeah. Yeah, no, there are people like on here right now posting messages as we're recording this podcast. So so, so listeners, if, if you want to get in touch with us from now on, I, I would say forget the Gmail mm-hmm. address. Mm-hmm. Like, Forget it. Forget it. We're just going to create an account on here and... You, that's the only you'll have to send us a private message to get in touch with us and i think that is the most effective way to run a high quality podcast here in madison I would wisconsin agree yeah we're very smart <laughs> alex thank you so much for like looking at this with me it just brings me so much joy for some reason no i love it it's oh so silly and like i just love that it's still active that's yeah. so great yeah. like it looks like it's ancient but like people are still using it people are still logging in super super cool it's wild wild stuff let's dive into that interview let's i would say it, yeah okay well Let's almost do that. But first, let's hear about another podcast on the Tone Madison Network. Hey, this is Jordan Cohen. AKA Tricks. And I have a new podcast called Digital Warmth, where I talk to producers, DJs, and other people in the electronic music world. Presented by Tone Madison. Hey, you're listening to Record Store Dropouts. This is Sean. I'm joined on the phone today by Jeffrey Lewis, who played a show with Los Bolts here in Madison on April 17th at Communication. Jeffrey, thanks for joining me today. Hey, hello. So Communication is an all-ages sober venue, and one of my favorite parts of this show that you played was that I noticed two younger people, maybe around 11 or 12, who were up near the front with their parents, and I was wondering if you noticed them before they left, and if so, or if not, if you could speak a little bit about your experience at Communication and with all-ages shows in general. Well, the USA has a situation where so many venues are 21 plus because that happens to be the drinking age around the country and a lot of venues I guess make a lot of their money from sales of alcohol and you know when you're doing a tour as a small indie band like myself and my band it's kind of preferable to be able to play all ages venues if I can find them because you know it's a big undertaking to do a tour takes a lot of work to do the booking and to figure out, you know, the travel and accommodation and every, everything else. So it's not as though we can just play in Madison, Wisconsin, you know, any random week of the year. It might be once every two years. There's a lot of areas that we tour all around the States, all around Europe and England and sometimes other places. So when we come to a place and there's actual fans that want to see us play and they can't get in because they're too young, it's really a drag. And, you know, also at my level, a couple extra fans actually makes a significant difference, you know. If we're playing to, uh, you know, 60 people instead of 55 people, that's quite a big difference to me, you know. And it, it just makes a big difference to the finances of the tour. And just it's worth every single person is valuable. And it's also just 
obviously annoying when somebody's like, I love your music, I have all your albums, I've been waiting for you to come to Fargo, North Dakota, but I'm 20 years old and I can't see mm. the show, or, you know, something like that. So as much as possible, I do try to book all ages, or 16 plus, or 18 plus, but ultimately when it comes down to it, I'd rather play a show than not play a show, and just because of the nature of how tour booking is, you know, if I need to get from Chicago to whatever, Denver, then I have to do a gig in Omaha because that's the one that is halfway there. So if I can't find an all-latest show, I'll play a 21-up show if I have to because the alternative is just not to play any show. But I will also say when it comes to, like, playing to younger audiences, you know, there's young and then there's really young. And sometimes people bring their kids to shows uh, especially, I think, a little more overseas, but sometimes in the States, too. And Or people ask me, like, oh, they see I do comic books, and they're like, oh, which of these should I buy for my kid? You know, he's mm. six years old. And I'm like, there really isn't anything kid-appropriate. There's nothing gratuitously disgusting, mostly. Like, it's not like there's really nasty sex or violence, like, sadistic stuff. But a lot of my stuff, from the songs to the comic books is not what I would call kid-friendly. There's There might be curses, there might be all sorts of weird things. You know, there might be very frank discussion of um, sex or just, you know, I like to let my imagination run pretty freely when I'm making my stuff. So I do sometimes, you know, say I might have an idea of what songs I'm going to play when I get on stage. I, I have a lot of fun writing the set list every night before we play. I have so many songs to pick from that, you know, picking which songs to play and making a set list is like really fun making a game plan you get on stage and then you're about to play a certain song and you're like wait a minute there's like seven year olds in the room I <laughs> am going to feel really awkward playing this song and that is, is sometimes a little problematic I think Kimya Dawson is pretty strict about playing all eight of shows I know that she you know has certain standards she likes when she tours and she's really into these kinds of community venues and even though she plays all eight of shows I think she makes some kind of pretty clear announcement where she's like, this is not a kid's show. You can bring your kids if you want, but just be prepared that it's going to be adult content or something like that. I, I, I've just seen her do stuff where she makes that pretty clear. So there is that. Yeah, so I actually have Fuff number eight here in front of me. And while I wouldn't say that it's, you know, anything too blue or, or too disgusting, certainly a little more mature. This brings me to, though, the kind of short films that you've been playing at your shows. You did a couple at Communication. One was about a person who replaces a monster's missing hand, but the other one was, I suppose, a little more serious in the sense that it was the sixth installment from your series on the history of communism, this one being about Vietnam. You used to perform these with large sketchbooks, like the one you made for the Cuban Missile Crisis for the History Channel, but you've transitioned to the slides. And I thought it was really interesting in the context of it being an all-ages show that there was this kind of educational aspect almost. So I'm wondering, first of all, how you stumbled upon this idea to do these kinds of performances. Okay, well, that goes back to probably around the year 2000, before I was touring, when I was just playing locally in New York, playing at open mics and playing, starting to play little local concerts around you know, 1998, 99, 2000, I, I just, I really wanted every show that I played to be significantly different. So I was coming up with all kinds of wacky ideas, and this is the sort of thing you can do 
when you're just playing shows locally, and I might play a New York show once a month or something like that back in those old days. So there was really an opportunity for me to kind of stretch out creatively, and it was a real period of trial and error in the early years of me playing music before very many people were paying any attention to it. And I tried out quite a lot of things. You know, sometimes I would have different friends of mine join me on different instruments, you know, just each one kind of being unique to that particular show. And one of the things that I tried out at some point in my early years was this idea of showing illustrations that go with the song rather than strumming the guitar. I thought, you know, what if I just flip through this big pad of paper that because I do draw comic books, it's something that kind of came naturally to me to do this illustration thing. And it was just like one more kind of wacky thing that I thought I was going to do for this one show just to really keep my audience on their toes and, you know, just not know what to expect when you come to a little local Jeffrey Lewis gig. But, you know, in those years of trial and error, mostly error, there were a few ideas that kind of stuck around into the career I, I had later when Rough Trade Records started actually putting out my music in a kind of official public capacity. And I started to learn how to book my own tours and, you know, kind of present myself to many more people than just the same sort of 30 people in New York. And one of the ideas that stuck around was this illustrated song thing. So I started, you know, I made more of those and they did start out on these pads of paper. But as the concerts got bigger, by the time it was like 2006, the pants of paper were really kind of not cutting it for especially the support gig that I was doing when I would tour, you know, with my brother on bass. And at that point we had a drummer and we started to get asked to open up for some bigger bands. And this band, The Cribs, that was in England at that time, we did a tour with them and a lot of the venues were like, you know, a thousand capacity or mm -hmm. 600 capacity. And these little pants of paper were like, you know, doing the audience a disservice because almost nobody could see what I was doing. Right. And I just bought a secondhand projector and decided to start experimenting with how I could figure out how to project these things. So basically, I still carry the books on tour. Every time I play a show, I'll have maybe two or three of the books tucked into my guitar case. And I also have this little portable projector now. So every time I show up at a venue, I kind of look at the size of the room. I look at the you know, can I hang my bed sheet to project onto here? If I use my projector, where am I going to put it? What's going to best serve this space? So, yeah, at communication, I ended up using the projections. And the benefit to using the projections, in addition to them being kind of bigger and brighter than the books, is that I can choose any one of maybe 40 different mm. stories that I've done. Right. With the books, I can only carry maybe three of them on each tour, and because I don't like to, you know, I, I like to change up my set list as much as possible from night to night, the projector allows me much wider variety of what I can pick from to show. For sure. So, yeah, that's, that's the story with that. Cool. In Williamsburg, Will Oldham Horror, you have a line about actually wishing you could do something positive in the world, like being a scientist or a history teacher. And I was wondering, in a weird way, if these slide projections and books were kind of a roundabout way for you to make this change while still pursuing your comic book art, your music, that sort of thing. Absolutely. I think uh, when I was about 27 and I realized, like, whoa, this is weird. I'm actually kind of, I am surviving off of my music and my art. And, you know, a lot of my music and art at that time in my early to mid-20s was a lot of, um, you know, 
my anxieties. I'm, you know, I'm so lonely. I'm so broke. I'm, uh, you know, me, 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 which was very powerful for me at the time. But once a few years had gone by of um, touring and it kind of dawned on me like, wait, this is kind of like my life now. Maybe there's something more that I can be saying if this is what I'm going to be doing full time, at least until, you know, until I can't do it anymore. And one of the ideas that made me feel like I was kind of reaching out beyond myself was the idea of doing something more political with the kind of illustrated songs that I was doing. And I had just this wonderful brainstorm experience. Once in a while, you just get an idea that you just get so excited about. It just hits you like a thunderclap. I could do anything in this illustrated song form. And I, um, you know, I could tackle any topic of any importance. And I just thought, well, hell, what is the biggest, most important topic of the entire 20th century? How can I just like, I was just so excited about this idea that I could just be completely, um, you know, ambitious. And the idea of doing the history of communism just seemed like, I just couldn't, I was like, this is going to be so freaking crazy. Like, I'm, (laughs) you know, I don't know, you know, I need to know about this stuff. I want to know, what is it? What, you know, right. My family was mostly, you know, all like old communists, basically going back generations. And as a kid growing up in the eighties, this was very confusing to me Mm. because, you know, in the eighties, like all the movies, the bad guys were all communists and my parents and my grandparents and my uncle and everybody was like, you know, this is just American propaganda, like, you know, the com- communists, like, do a lot of really good things, uh, and all this stuff. So, it was just from childhood something that was very confusing to me, and the idea that I could kind of make myself an assignment to learn about this, and then present what I'd learned in these illustrated songs, has just been a source of great inspiration to me ever since. I really had no idea. I just thought that would be one book that I would do, The History of Communism. But once I started looking into it, it ended up being like this idea that I would do a whole series of them on different countries. And, you know, so it's just kind of gone on and on. To synthesize a couple things that you've touched upon already in the comic book film adaptation, exploring modern Hollywood's leading genre, author Liam Burke discusses how comics have been seen as a quote unquote lower art form due in part to their association with juvenile readers. You mentioned that parents will bring their kids to your shows ask what comics you'd recommend for the children, even though they may be dealing with more mature subjects. And to an extent, I feel like punk music is kind of treated similarly or looked down upon. But what you're doing is kind of pushing against that, right? It seems with the kind of cartoons that you're doing that are dealing with these really massive histories and, and doing it in a way that is comprehensive but also really easy to ingest i kind of think of it as like history of japan or the history of the world i guess by bill Wirtz. i don't know that stuff maybe check it out if you have the time history of japan's like a nine minute video bill Wirtz started out by doing just kind of like random jingles with like just weird aesthetics and graphics and then it turned into him kind of condensing all of japanese history to a nine minute video came back like a couple of years later and did one about the world. And it's, it's very, very political, but also done in this kind of like self-deprecating, almost nihilistic. Hum- it, it, it's a weird, weird thing that's out on the internet, but, well, but, but you're up my alley. Yeah. Yeah. Your short films reminded me a lot of this actually. So I was wondering if you could speak about 
this kind of perception of these different art forms as juvenile. And then beyond that, actually, I'm wondering to what extent, if at all, your visual art informs your songwriting. Because in the past, you've described yourself as a comic book artist who happens to make music, not the other way around. Well, certainly, you know, I was making visual art and comic books my entire life, like since being a little kid. And I'm actually inking my new comic right now while I'm speaking to you. I've got the phone in one hand and my, my brush in the other hand. Nice. Um, and, you know, the simplicity, the accessibility of comic books and folk music and punk music, these are three forms that you could say are, you know, they share an invitational quality because unlike, say, jazz or opera or film or ballet or, you know, a lot of other mediums that you could mention, there aren't that many barriers financially or, you know, even skill-wise to uh, just having a piece of paper and turning it into something in in the form of a comic book or, you know, making up a song that you can say is a complete song, um, and you could call it a punk song or a folk song, or you know, these are art forms that are sort of like you know, good to start out on, I guess, if you just feel very impassioned about what you have to say or what you want to do. They're kind of art forms for the impatient because you just <laughs> get right in there and do it. Like, there's no you don't need other people's help, and you don't need money, and you don't need much of anything. So to me, that I can I can see a kind of connective tissue between the comic books and the folk music and the punk music in, in that way. I don't think my comic books or my history of, you know, my background in drawing comics, I don't know how much that informs my songwriting. Like, I don't, I don't really see that. People ask me that sometimes, like, and I, I wish I had some kind of clever answer that could connect <laughs> the dots and, like, be revealing of, of some, you know, some interesting thread there, but I, I, I really can't other than the fact that they are, you know, both very accessible forms. And when you're young and very lonely and have no money and have, you know, not much else to do, you know, I was making comic books and drawing a lot. And then at a certain point, when I got out of college, I had so much lonely time that uh, even that wasn't enough to fill all my lonely time. So I started messing around and making up songs on guitar. I suppose nowadays somebody in that situation might just spend all their time on Facebook or something, but there was no Facebook in the late 90s, uh, thankfully for me. So, you know, this this was just like a desperate cry for, uh, you know, just to be mm. part of the human race, really, just like a way to have my thoughts heard and hope that somebody else out there would hear them and a way to meet people and sort of show that I had something going on in my head that wasn't necessarily apparent when you just looked at this weird loser kid. So that... Yeah, that's that's sort of where all that came from. Well, thank you for sharing that. We'll touch upon meeting people as a musician or also as a comic book artist in a second. But before we get there, I feel like if I asked the average person to think of a comic book, they'd either think of like a newspaper funny or a superhero comic. Now, people who've visited your website, listened to your music, seen videos where you've talked about this, they probably already know that you fell in love with the Marvel character Rom the Space Knight when you were four. The superhero Meteorite Might appears in Fuff number eight, 
You also wrote your thesis on Watchmen, a kind of self-reflexive graphic novel about heroes. Now, in this age of like superhero box office dominance in Hollywood, I'm wondering how you grapple with superheroes and superhero films as having been this kind of source of inspiration for you, but at the same time, they're this money-making kind of corporate cultural behemoth. Well, you know, a lot of people do ask me, like, if I've seen these movies, which is my favorite superhero movie and stuff like that. And to be honest, even though it gives me great punk rock pleasure to be able to say this, so it's not like I'm admitting something shameful, I'm like proud of just being a punk and saying like, I really don't care about any of these movies. I haven't seen most of them. The ones that I have seen seem to basically stink. Once in a while, I've sort of come across one that wasn't so bad. None of them are anything like what I would call my favorite movies, and I'm not like that excited when something new comes out. You know, I, I what did I say? Which ones did I, I mean, I, I liked a couple of the X-Men ones that I saw, and I think a couple of the Spider-Man ones that I saw, I thought were all right. But yeah, it just doesn't really do much for me. It doesn't, it's not something that's important to me. And, you know, superhero comic books nowadays are not that important to me either. I wish there were more comics that were important to me now. You know, I'll get really excited and run to a comic book store if I hear that there's a new Alan Moore comic book. Right. Or if I hear that there's something from uh, Daniel Klaus. Like, I'm still completely capable of getting super excited about certain comic books if there's something new from Chester Brown, except that the people that I love barely do any comics anymore. It might be once every four years that they come out with something. So I haven't really spent that much time in comic book stores in recent years, which is a kind of depressing, but I'm sure there's good comics that I haven't been paying attention to. Uh, that's, I mean, I'm 43 years old, so it makes sense that I wouldn't necessarily be like at the, the hip cutting edge of uh, knowing what's going on out there. But I think there's something really... My perspective on these comic book movies, even the ones that are like not bad, Ghost World... Um, for example, was right. like not bad. V for Vendetta was not bad. I think there's something arrogant about the the idea that a film, because it adds motion and sound and music, is like taking this substandard template of a story that exists mm. in the comic book and finally bringing it to life the way it was always meant to be. Interesting. But what they ignore is that when you lose the art, when you lose like the fact that this is the, the lines, the expressive quality of the lines on the page, the atmosphere that's created by the art, you lose so much more than you could possibly put in just by having it be real people on a screen. I mean, when if you read Spider-Man comics from the 80s and you see, uh, you know, art by John Romita Jr., or you read, you know, X-Men comics with, uh, you know, say the artist was Barry Windsor Smith or say it was, uh, you know, John Byrne inked by Terry Austin, right? I'm like an 80s Marvel nerd. That's the comics I grew up with. The way those comics look or, you know, Frank Miller's Daredevil issues or, you know, obviously David Lloyd and V for Vendetta and, of course, the art of Dan Clowes and Ghost World and his other comics. What you would have to do to create that atmosphere on screen is far beyond... The, the artistic powers of these directors. They're just saying, like, okay, say these lines, we'll film it, we'll light it this way, we'll do right. some special effects. But the actual world that is created by the artwork 
is just subtracted entirely, and it's not replaced by anything. So that, to me, is kind of like, what you know, it loses more than it gains. That's basically the, the long and short of it. Definitely, and maybe not to go as deep as the kind of take that you're bringing, but it's just a fundamentally different experience. I think Ghost World, which you mentioned, tries to do a couple things where maybe you're showing windows or Enid and Rebecca are going through old photos where it kind of mimics the framing of comic books, but the actual act of watching a film just from a technical standpoint is very, very difficult to mimic. As we wrap up here, you're hosting an art night at your apartment that you inherited from people who were doing it in Brooklyn years ago. Now, whereas musicians can have jam sessions together or meet people at shows, it seems like comic making is a fundamentally isolated endeavor. I was wondering if you could share a little bit about what these like about what these nights are like and how important building community or even just being around others while you create can be for a comic artist. Well, it's something that I always kind of dreamed of in my younger years. I was always like, where are all the comic book artists? I wish I knew other people that were making comics. And I mostly just didn't. But there was also, uh, comics kind of went through a, a, a kind of punk rock revolution at some point in the early 2000s, I think. And the doors were kind of thrown open for a lot of people who wouldn't necessarily have thought they were like able to make comics or... Um, you know, didn't feel welcome in the world of comics. There was kind of like, a, you know, artists like, say, uh, James Kolchalka or um, even Chris Ware, whose art is extremely sophisticated, but it's a very boiled down, sort of simplified sophistication that makes it look as though you just need these kind of simplified characters and kind of basic, almost geometric backgrounds. Mm-hmm. I think a lot of people got inspired by some of the stuff that was coming out in the 90s. And by the time you hit the 2000s, there's a lot more people making comics. And a lot more women, especially, I think, which is great. It's like there's so many new voices in comics that I think it's kind of comparable to what happened in rock and roll with, with punk rock in the you know mid to late 70s and early 80s. So I was, you know, there's me just making comics in New York, wondering where all the comic artists are and how I can ever meet them. And then I was at a concert of uh, Robin Hitchcock and I noticed there was a kid, a guy uh, about my age, trying to give, after the show, he was trying to give Robin Hitchcock some of his comics. And I was like, wait a minute, that's John Lewis, who does True Swamp comics. That's so cool. I know his stuff. So, you know, while he was trying to get Robin Hitchcock's attention, I was kind of behind him trying to get his attention. <laughs> and as it turned out, we were both taking the same subway that night, leaving the concert. So I was able to, like, keep harassing him and, you know, telling him who I was and how I make comics and I like his stuff and blah, blah, blah. And it turned out, you know, we're both big fans of the band The Fall. So I was telling him I have some artwork about The Fall. I did an illustrator history of The Fall, blah, blah, blah. So even though I'm like a total weirdo stranger to him, he like lets me in on this secret that there's this weekly comic book gathering uh, of these people. Okay. And at that, at that time, it was mostly happening at an art studio called Pizza Island. And it was uh, people like Julia Wirtz and uh, Gabrielle Bell and actually the woman who ended up doing the art for uh, BoJack Horseman. It was a lot of women, Karen Snyder, and um, they all sort of all knew each other, and they all hung out together once a week and made comics and talked about their publishing deals and all this stuff. And I was like, wow, this is the world that I always wanted to find. But, you know, over time, they sort of stopped doing those gatherings as frequently. Uh, a lot of people moved away. People kind of got too famous to bother hanging out at that sort of mm. thing, I guess. 
And I was really missing it, so I was like, hell, I'll just start having it at my apartment. And, you know, some of those same people start coming to them at my apartment, um, and I just keep adding to the invitation list. I, You know, I met an artist last Friday night who does comic books, and I was like, oh, you should come to my art night. So the, the invite list just gets longer and longer, and, you know, I don't do it weekly anymore, but, you know, I do it once in a while. Very cool. Well, I know it's getting close to that time, so I want to be respectful of your time. I was wondering, though, if you had any update on new musical projects that you have planned for the future. Oh, man, I've got so much stuff. It's kind of frustrating how much I'm sitting on, and I need to get this stuff out into the world. I recorded a really great new album with my regular band. That's Brent on drums and Mem on bass. But at this point, I mean, it was recorded last year, and I'm still kind of haggling out record label deals and figuring out what the best circumstance is for this album to come out. And at this point, I'll kind of be lucky if it comes out before the end of this year. But I have, I'm making progress on that, and I think what I'm going to do is I might have one label release it in the States and one label release it overseas. I've never tried that before, but it seems appealing. But I'm just trying to work out the uh, nitty-gritty details. And, of course, since I don't have a manager or a lawyer, this is all stuff that I do myself. <laughs> I've gotten pretty good at it after, you know, 20 years of doing this stuff. I feel confident of my ability to figure out like what it is I want and what I don't want. So there's that album. Then Peter Stample, who's like the older folk musician that I've done a bunch of projects with in the past, he was in the 60s band, the Holy Modal Rounders, and he was in the Fugs briefly. And we've made a couple albums together over the years, and we've done some tours together. He's 81 now. And we there's two albums that I've made with him that have not gotten released yet. And I'm kind of sitting on those two albums, trying to figure out when and where and how to put that material out. And I've got my new comic book, which I've been working on. Uh, this is issue number 12, Fuff, Fuff number 12. I think it's going to be the last issue of this series, and then I'm going to start a new series after this. But I've been working on this one issue. It's kind of a long issue, but that doesn't really excuse the fact that it's taken me over a year to get it done. I'm just so busy with this other stuff that the comic book often gets worked on last of all, of all things. But it's all penciled and... As we speak, I'm inking page 13 of 32, so I have about 20 more pages to ink. I was hoping I would get this out before my UK tour in June, but it seems unlikely. But if I keep plugging away, I'll hopefully have a new issue done you know, sometime this summer. And that's basically most of what I'm... I, oh, my Watchmen thing! I, the, the, uh, you talked about my, my Watchmen literary senior thesis, which I've now turned into this like 200-page full-on book analysis that oh, wow. I'm hopefully getting published this year. I got the copy edits back from the the editor, and um, I'm hoping to put that out through the Don Giovanni Records book publishing division, but I haven't gotten around, you know, it, it's um, a lot of reformatting, blah, blah, blah. So it's, you know, it's, I, I have like all these exciting projects that are like so frustratingly close to coming out, but even if they did all come out, they couldn't all come out at once because... Each one kind of needs, to, you know, I need to like have some kind of plan for how I'm going to announce each one. And if I put out five new things in one week, <laughs> I don't know if that's a good idea. So yeah, that's my that's my current situation. I have like a lot bottled up in the pipeline, waiting to figure out how to release. All right. Well, barring any sort of King Gizzard and the Lizard Wizard esque release schedule, we'll have to be patient for all of those. So Jeffrey, thank you so much for joining me today. Cool. Thanks for the call. All right, thank you, first of all, to everyone who voted for us recently in the Isthmus Mad Faves poll. This was the first time that y'all could vote for us, and I have no idea 
how it turned out. I don't know if we're in the top three of favorite local podcasts here in Madison, but I'd like to think that we are in some of your hearts. So <laughs> thanks. And thank you as well to Scott Gordon and Tone Madison for giving our project a virtual home. If you are interested in supporting local journalism, you may become a Tone Madison sustainer at tonemadison.com forward slash donate. Tone Madison is housed in communication. You can learn more about communication at communicationmadison.com. Big thanks also to Disc and Saddle Creek Records for the use of the song Communication as our excellent, amazing Ow! theme music. More information about them at disc.bandcamp.com and saddle-creek.com. Thank you to EJ, Shannon, and Evangeline for being patrons of this project. If you like this podcast and want us to grow, please consider becoming a patron at patreon.com forward slash record store dropouts. Please know, though, that you do not have to provide us with your monies in order to support capitalism us. capitalism sucks. What Sean said, I completely agree. If you also think capitalism sucks or just don't want to give us your money, you can like, you can rate us, you can subscribe to us, you can give us those five stars or whichever mm, number you feel mm, mm, mm. is best. Tasty. We would love it. That's the only currency that I trade in, Alex. Five stars. Yeah. Awesome. <laughs> <laughs> All right, we're going to get out of here, but if there's an album, video, or artist that you want us to discuss, drop us a message at recordstoredropouts at gmail.com or find us on the Jeffrey Lewis message board. Send us a private message on there. We, we're not going to give you the username. You're, you're just going to have to find us. And remember, always judge an album by its cover. <laughs>